Good morning, everyone. Uh, before I call the first case, it's my privilege to recognize Ms. Uh, Teresa Williams and her law and justice class from 71st High School in Fayetteville. Welcome. This time, I'll call the case of Mole versus City of Durham, and we'll hear from the appellant. May it please the court, I am Travis Payne of the firm of Edelstein and Payne, and with me today is Michael McGinnis, my colleague and co-counsel of the McGinnis Law Firm. We have the privilege of representing former police sergeant Michael Mole. I will address the fruits of labor claim under Article 1, Section 1 of our Constitution. Mr. McGinnis will address the equal protection claim under Article 1, Section 19. It is our intention to reserve five minutes for rebuttal. This case involves matters of safety for police officers and for the public. As the brief of the Fraternal Order of Police points out, uh, situations involving barricaded suspects are some of the most dangerous that police officers face. There is a significant possibility of serious injury or death to the suspect, to the officers involved, and to the public. Sergeant Mole was thrust into just such a serious and dangerous situation in the early morning hours of June 28, 2016. A suspect had gone into an upstairs bedroom in an apartment and was threatening to kill himself with his gun. This was the first negotiation in which Sergeant Mole was involved since he had attended an FBI school two years, more than two years before. He arrived on the scene with about five minutes left uh, in the suspect suicide deadline without any backup negotiators or tactical officers on the scene as required by policy. Sergeant Mole began talking with the suspect with the goal of keeping him alive. The negotiations continued for about two hours during which the suspect became highly agitated on multiple occasions. Early in the discussions, a gunshot went off, confirming that the suspect had a loaded weapon. Late in the negotiations, the suspect said he was going to smoke a marijuana blunt that he had. Sergeant Mole was taught in the FBI training that if barricaded suspects used intoxicating substances, they could become more unstable, possibly leading to this suspect acting on his threat of suicide. To prevent a suicide, as well as to prevent the suspect from deciding to shoot it out with the officers, he asked the suspect to hold off smoking the blunt. The suspect agreed he would hold off if he could smoke it after he surrendered. To get the suspect to leave the gun upstairs and peacefully surrendered, Sergeant Mole agreed. Sergeant Mole threw his handcuffs up the stairs. The suspect put the handcuffs on his hands in front of him. He left the gloated gun upstairs. He came down the stairs with his hands in front and surrendered. While sitting in the living room after surrendering, the suspect took the blunt from behind his ear and lit it with his cigarette lighter. He was allowed to smoke about half of it. We rely on General Order 4030, Revision 3, as the policy that supports the Article 1, Section 1 claim. That is the hostage or barricaded suspect situation policy. It states, and I quote, the saving of human life, whether it is the life of the hostages, the suspects, 
the involved police officers, or the innocent bystanders is the primary goal in dealing with hostage and or barricaded suspect situations. End of quote. That policy also provides that all demands are negotiable except for three specific matters. We alleged in paragraph 78 of the complaint that those ex exceptions did not apply to the agreement reached by Sergeant Mole, and the city admitted that in its answer. We also alleged in paragraph 72 that Sergeant Mole had the discretion to enter into that surrender agreement. Again, the city admitted that. In his very first negotiation, let, let me just ask a basic question. Sure. Um, are any of the ordinances or policies that uh, the plaintiff relies on in the record before us? Um, actually, the uh, General Order 4030 R3 was attached to at least two of the amicus briefs. It's a public record, and several of the amici obtained it and attached it to their briefs. I believe. Uh, the professional firefighters brief and I think also uh, NCAE's brief had that policy attached so they are in the record your honor uh, we alleged and the city admitted that sergeant Mole saved the life of an armed suspect that's the complaint paragraph 75 so an officer with an exemplary record performed admirably to de-escalate and resolve a very dangerous situation, saving a suicidal man's life, and he did so in full compliance with the provisions of General Order 4030 R3, and he got fired for doing that. Turning to the legal issues, the fruits of labor claim is also referred to as the Tully claim because of the seminal case of Tully v. City of Wilmington issued by this court in March 2018. I will address four contentions of the city regarding that claim. First, that Tully is solely limited to promotional policies. Next, that we are asserting that every adopted policy can be the basis for a Tully claim. Then, that a decision in Sergeant Mole's favor will abrogate the employment at will doctrine. And finally, that there are different standards when the government is regulating than when it is an employer. Are you asking us to expand Tully? Yes. Uh, Tully, on its facts, was limited, and the, de the defense, the uh, city, correctly points out. The elements, as listed in the Tully opinion, are limited to promotional processes. Uh, however, as the Court of Appeals stated in, in its opinion, the reasoning of this court is much broader than this promotional processes. So technically, Your Honor, yes, we are asking you to expand uh, the Tully decision slightly. Well, when you say slightly, in what ways you're anticipating my question, in what ways would you have us to do that without uh, going further afield than we need to? Well, when you think about policies that should form the basis for a Tully claim. Well, promotional policies are important and should be followed. The policy we rely upon here, which was adopted to protect the safety of police officers and citizens, 
that policy in the great scheme of things is far more important and far more impactful than a personnel promotional policy. We are proposing, and, and we've said this in our petition for discretionary review, we said it in our brief, that where a first responder fully complies with an operational policy adopted to protect uh, uh, first responders, police officers, and citizens and the public, and is fired for complying with that policy, that that is certainly arbitrary and capricious on the part of the public employer, and it amounts to a Tully claim or the basis for a Tully claim. Tully involved uh, the governmental entity not complying with its own promotional policies. Mm -hmm. We're not talking about promotion here, of course. We're talking about the ability to uh, maintain one's employment, and the other side feels as though that could uh, abridge the at-will doctrine in this state. How do we balance the two? Well, at footnote 8 of our brief, we address that, um, and, and that is, uh, in 1977, the U.S. Supreme Court, in the uh, Mount Healthy decision, uh, did address the issue of uh, constitutional claims arising for public employees. It was a public teacher in that case. And as the court held, that uh, that public school teacher was still an at-will employee. They agreed. That was the primary defense of the school system. They agreed with that. and. But they said where the discharge implicates constitutional rights, it cannot stand. And that's the same case here. We submit that Sergeant Mole's discharge violates his fundamental right to the fruits of his labor, Article 1, Section 1. It implicates constitutional rights, and it cannot stand. But a decision favorable to Sergeant Mole here would in no way prohibit public employers from discharging employees who are not performing or for other reasons that do not implicate constitutional issues. Council, I'm going to jump in here because I have some questions that I, I don't want to eat too much into your uh, friend's time on, on equal protection. But So if you, if you look at Tully, um, and I think Tully, in terms of outcomes, certainly correctly decided if you look at just the general question of um, was it a constitutional violation. But I'm curious why the court in Tully used fruits of their own labor clause and rejected the law of the land clause claim. So it, Tully starts out and it examines uh, the fruits of their own labor clause. It talks about cases like balance, and there's a long line of those that dealt with the government uh, preventing people in the private sector from engaging in a particular occupation. And then they talk about Presnell and which I, to me seems more like a law of the land, a due process case. Mm -hmm. And ultimately what it seems to me that Tully is saying is when the government creates a process, it has to provide due process, has to, whatever guidance it has, it can't act in a way that is arbitrary and irrational in that process. And that that's what happened in Tully. The outcome there, the, that promotional decision made no sense on those facts, and that's why the court said it violates the Constitution. My, my fear that I'd like you to address is, if we force this into fruits of their own labor clause, we're going to make fruits of their own labor clause coextensive with the law of the land clause, which is already coextensive with the 14th Amendment's due process clause, and we just have a total mess. And it seems to me we need 
some guidance to litigants in our state about what where is the source of this right when the government is acting in an irrational way and employing uh, you know citizens of our state so can you respond to that well I I have a bit of a disagreement with you in in Tully this court specifically held he was an employee at will and had no property interest I don't view the Tully decision under Article 1, Section 1 as a due process decision. It is fundamentally, when government enacts a policy, they should ought to follow it. Well, and they didn't. And that makes it arbitrary and capricious. That gets to my question. I, why, are, why does uh, this court seem so fixated on the idea that you only have a law of the land clause claim if it's dealing with property? If, you know, there's a, even in the... 14th Amendment due process context, uh, there's the notion that if uh, a state or the government <coughs> creates a process for people, that it has to follow that process, even if you might not describe it as a property right. It's just the idea that you owe it as a matter of procedural due process when there is a system like that, that you don't act as the government in an arbitrary and irrational way. And why wouldn't that be kind of the nature of the Tully claim and of your claim in this case, that there are these ordinances. There is this understanding. And if the decision by the government in this case is truly arbitrary and irrational, it would violate that principle, but perhaps not the, the one at the heart of fruits of their own labor, which is about the government allowing people to compete freely in the marketplace. Well, uh, again, uh, Sergeant Mole was discharged. And uh, I think it was Corporal Tully uh, was just denied a promotion. <laughs> again, this case has more serious facts in it than the Tully case did. Um, you know, I did a case years ago in the Fourth Circuit, Pittman versus um, County of Wilson, and uh, again, uh, we were relying on a policy that seemed to give her some rights, and the Fourth Circuit held that the employee handbook created no rights, did not create a property interest, and booted us. Um, and that has now been adopted in North Carolina law by our Court of Appeals. I don't think this court has quite gotten there, but probably will. I view the due process argument as a separate constitutional font of protections. They don't apply to Sergeant Mole. We tried to make that argument at the Court of Appeals. We have abandoned it here. We were trying to rely on all the policies creating an implied property interest. But it is real clear in the jurisprudence both of this court and of the U.S. Supreme Court that to get a due process right under the, the law of the land clause under uh, the 14th Amendment that a public employee needs a property interest, and most public employees don't have that. So if, if a constitutional law professor came up to you and said, um, using the federal doctrine, tiers of scrutiny, said which tier of scrutiny applies in a Tully case? Like which one are you arguing applies here? What's your, which one do you think applies? This court has said several times, I believe most particularly in King versus Town of Chapel Hill, that uh, the rights guaranteed by the fruit of labor are inalienable rights. Therefore, fundamental rights, the highest tier. That would be my argument on, but, on that. But does it look like they're applying strict scrutiny? I mean, uh, that to me is a reasonable argument, but that's not the language they used in Tully, right? They, it seems like they're applying rational basis. Well, Tully says uh, that you know, we express no opinion as to whether or not Tully's claim actually can be proved and doesn't articulate that standard, I do not believe. But when you're focusing on is a government action arbitrary or rational? Yes. That's not language you'd use in strict scrutiny, right? You don't, 
if you're applying strict scrutiny or even intermediate scrutiny, you're not asking is it just wholly irrational or arbitrary or, you know, there's a much more difficult standard uh, for the government to satisfy, right? Yes, it, it would. So, you know, what, what I find curious is there's no, there, there, there's a strong reason to apply that kind of a standard, rational basis, to a law of the land clause. It's a law of the land's coextensive with, um, with 14th Amendment due process. We know that this type of claim there, just a claim in employment would receive rational basis. I'm concerned that we, the Tully cases are forcing fruits of their own labor clause into a rational basis standard that our framers never intended for it to, um, to apply to that clause. So, you know, is there something we need to do as a court to clarify what the standard is for this unique provision in our state constitution? Well, again, I think this court has said that it's an inalienable right. It is a fundamental right. And under the standards, even by the United States Supreme Court, fundamental rights result in strict scrutiny. So I need to defer to my colleague, Mr. McGinnis. Cap counsel, I'm sorry. To, to your right, I have a question. Okay, certainly. How would your argument be different, if at all, uh, had the suspect, uh, had the, the, the drug involved been, for example, heroin instead of marijuana? Would you be making the, the same arguments? I, that is not this case, and I haven't thought about that, Your Honor. I think under this case, the facts basically are established that what Sergeant Mole did complied with all the provisions of 4030 and fulfilled the primary objective, and allowing someone to smoke that joint, that's not even a jailable offense. That's a $200 maximum fine. And but it wouldn't have been a violation of 4030 had the drug involved been heroin and had Sergeant Molay done the same thing, would it? I, I haven't thought that clear. I, I will agree that there certainly are theoretical agreements that the negotiating officer might have made that would have been so far out of bounds that it would be unreasonable and, and would not uh, comply with 4030. That is not this case, though. Thank you. Good morning, Your Honors, and may it please the court. Our equal protection position begins with the text of Article I, Section 19 of our Constitution. And our Constitution contains not one equal protection clause, but two equal protection clauses. The one in application here is the first clause, which reads, no person shall be denied the equal protection of the laws. The second equal protection clause identifies a number of what we know as suspect classes. Sergeant Molay is surely a person, therefore triggering application of the first clause. We respectfully submit that he's also a hero and that his law enforcement service on that day was truly incredible and saved the life of Mr. Smoot. The first of the equal protection clauses protects Sergeant Molay from the absolutely egregious discrimination which is in the record 
before you at pages 16 through 20 and 27 and 28. It is most significant that Sergeant Molay acted within his policy as he was taught. He gets fired for saving a life, yet numerous other officers, Your Honors, who committed not just offenses. This court's conscience should be shocked. And it breaks my heart to know and to realize and have to say there were Durham police officers committing not just crimes, but felonies, theft. And maybe the worst example, and they're set out in the complaint in detail, and certainly there's not time to try to go through all of them now, but when there's a domestic violence investigator who was having sex with a victim while making threats to her, and he told the victim he would bring more charges against her ex-boyfriend depending upon how often she had sex with him. I recall that from my young years as a prosecutor as being an act of extortion. And it is unfathomable that the city of Durham didn't take appropriate action to terminate that officer and terminate other officers. Supervisors who stole time, supervisors who stole gun parts, excessive force with severe injury. That this is an especially stark pattern in practice of disparate treatment. Our equal protection claim, Your Honor, is predicated upon alternative grounds, each of which has existing North Carolina precedent. Class of one discrimination, disparate treatment, and selective enforcement. Your Honors, in every town and village in North Carolina that has a police department, from Manio to Murphy, and even in Elizabethtown. There is a police book of rules and regulations, sometimes entitled different. And it is a fundamental core part of our law enforcement system that those operational rules are vitally important. And in all due respect to those that advocated so strongly in the Tully case, I would respectfully submit to this court that the importance and significance of police operational rules, they are just far more important than personnel rules. Because when a police operational rule gets violated or ignored, sometimes citizens and law enforcement officers die. And this is a case, Your Honor, a model case of a model police officer employing the technique now that's being appropriately debated around the country, that our officers should be better trained in de-escalating. And Sergeant Malay de-escalated for two hours and saved somebody's life. The fundamental principle at stake here, Your Honor, goes back far, way back before Tully. It started in the 1950s in a line of cases called Accardi. And here is the dispositive punchline. Quotes, an agency of the government must scrupulously observe rules, regulations, or procedures which it has established. When it fails to do so, its action cannot stand and courts will strike it down. That is a fundamental principle of good common sense and good common constitutional law. And isn't that 
Also, I mean, there's plenty of federal cases that make that observation under the 14th Amendment, the due process clause. If yes, the government creates a process, it has to follow it. Yes, sir. Because the government could choose not to create that process, in which case you wouldn't have a constitutional claim. So that sounds to me like a, an argument very similar to the one your friend just made about fruits of their labor clause. What's the difference doctrinally, then, between these two claims? Or are we — did we take two very unique provisions in our state constitution and just say they're the same? Your Honor, what I'm suggesting is that this principle is also highly relevant to equal protection, because what we have here, uh, clearly Durham is disrespecting its own policy, and therefore that triggers the selective enforcement principle that this Court recognized as far back as 1892 in the Tenet case, and periodically about every decade or so there's been a case in reliance upon the selective enforcement principle. And what Durham did here was selectively apply its policy and, of course, terminated Sergeant Malay and allowed this egregious and, in some cases, felonious context. So we are suggesting the relevance of the Accardi principle is also in the equal protection context, Your Honor. Your can, Honor, there can, is... Can you point to... Um, what policy you're referencing? Uh, it's 40-30. That is, that is the law enforcement policy and issue. And is that in the record anywhere? Uh, yes. It, it, well, it's, it's at least quoted in uh, verbatim in the brief from the record, and as Mr. Payne indicated, I think one of the amicus briefs set that out. But I believe that's clearly... <coughs> Clearly in the record. Counsel, is it, is it clear that uh, 4030 was violated? Your, your co-counsel, in response to my question about um, where would we be if the drug at issue involved had been heroin, seemed to concede that, in fact, 4030 may not cover every situation in which uh, an agreement reached between a negotiator and a suspect would be impermissible. Your Honor, 4030 may not, in fact, cover every situation. But, of course, we have analyzed the case and set forth at least the best argument we could based on these particular facts, these particular facts. Mr. Smoot was about to smoke the marijuana cigarette upstairs. Sergeant Molay recognized the risk of that. He's already got a gun, and what we hadn't heard yet in the courtroom, the gun had already been fired. So his negotiation tactic, he entered into what's known as a surrender agreement, which Justice Allen has great significance in law enforcement. They are expected to be enforced, and there's, I think, good argument in the police amicus briefs to that effect. Um, Law enforcement officers are expected to adhere to their agreements and their deals. They're expected to be truthful. And what Sergeant Molay successfully did was he negotiated that man down before he lit the marijuana cigarette upstairs. And like my co-counsel, and I apologize, Your Honor, I hadn't thought about it, if it might have been some other arguably more serious type of drugs. But fortunately, we don't have that, that fact before the court. Thank you. Your Honors, I'm reminded that um, 
My time is limited, and I thank you for that. Uh, there is precedent, particularly in the tumor case, which has been a 22-year precedent. The law enforcement community in this state has had that precedent to use to attempt to protect jobs. Uh, we respectfully ask you to uh, reverse on the equal protection claim so that police officers are considered persons under the equal protection clause. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. We'll hear from the appellee. May it please the court. My name is Henry Saffenfield. I'm from the law firm of Ken and Craver in Durham, and I'm here representing the city of Durham in this matter. I'd like to begin by discussing why Mr. Mole's allegations do not and cannot meet a fruits of the labor claim under the North Carolina Constitution. The differences are not just that one involved a promotional decision and that one involved termination. I would say, looking at the explicit elements that this court set out in Tully, that there is a lack of causation here. Uh, the plaintiff in Tully was injured because he answered written questions on a promotional exam, which had a city policy that were to have contest and criteria validity. And then he was not permitted to grieve that decision, despite the fact that there was a policy that allowed him to correct or retake the test. Here, Mole, in his discretion, permitted a suspect who was in custody to smoke a marijuana cigarette in front of him before he took him in to be booked. The chief of police did not violate a city of Durham policy in making her decision to terminate Molly. As detailed in Mr. Molly's very extensive complaint, um, the decision, uh, internal affairs investigation occurred. There is a, uh, there is a process where these supervisors go through and can make a decision. All the supervisors say this requires demotion, this requires demotion, just requires demotion, it gets to the chief of police who says no, not demotion, termination, and here we are. Speaking of the process, uh, how should we look at this aspect of there being a pre-dismissal hearing which under the policy of the city would take place three days after notice is given of the pre-dismissal hearing and yet the hearing was held the next day? It's correct, Your Honor, and that goes directly to my point. Um, under and it's not keeping in mind we're in 12 v 6 and we're, we're limited to what's in the uh, complaint um, it's not fully explicated but it does talk about the reality which is the pre-disciplinary conference occurs with Mr. Mole's supervisor not with the chief of police and the supervisor can make their determination but it is the discretion exercised by the chief of police and her decision to terminate Mole, which has led to the issue here. And I would put to this court, based on the specific factual allegations that have been presented to you, there is no direct causation issue. Is it discretionary when the pre-dismissal hearing takes place? It is not discretionary. Um, it is, uh, I, what I'm saying is um, that policy was not complied with. I'm not trying to argue otherwise. I'm saying the fact that he didn't have additional time Based on his own allegations, what is the harm? Because again, the harm he complains of is the chief of police's decision to terminate him. 
And the Court of Appeals, in its decision, said, well, Mr. Mole would have been given additional time to prepare. But as detailed in the extensive briefing in this matter, the, the facts are known. There are no fundamentally different facts. There is nothing different to be presented. The same material is presented to the chief of police who made her own independent determination. But in light of Tully and the uh, argument made by the other side that Tully applies, uh, what would be the response that the city did not follow its own governmental policies because instead of waiting three days to have the pre-dismissal hearing, it held it the next day, especially in light of what uh, the petitioning party is saying here, that there was no time to get the position together of the officer to be able to respond to what would be anticipated in the pre-dismissal hearing. Uh, yes. The third element in Tully was that the plaintiff was injured as a result of the violation. The violations of the policies in Tully were directly at issue in those decisions. It was those two specific policies that applied. Here, the issue would be that it, it's not 40-30. Let's say that there was, in fact, a city policy that you must comply with surrender agreements. There is not. Uh, um, appellants point you to good policy arguments that have been presented to this court in amicus briefs. That's not the same thing as the city of Durham having a policy. If there had been a policy so that you must... Maybe you're headed right in this direction, but so your position, if there was a policy, and the policy is even more specific, suppose the policy says to de-escalate hostage situation, officers may, upon the surrender, you know, of, of the suspect, allow the suspect to smoke a marijuana cigarette or, you know, what the exact facts here. Would there be a fruits of their own labor clause claim and termination in your view? If, if so long as this court upholds Tully and the reasoning in Tully, then I think there would be. Now, it's interesting to consider the fruits of the labor clause in Tully as it becomes a matter of first impression. It is a mirror image of the cases that preceded it, cases like State versus Balance, King versus Chapel Hill, Bazell versus Board of Aldermen of the City of Goldsboro. Those cases, the court found implicitly, explicitly, there was no, those were all police power cases, and those cases did not, there was an implicit or explicit determination that the policy being put forward, the governmental, put being, governmental interest being put forward, was itself not valid. That is to say, there's no basis for regulating the, uh, the licensure of photographers. Um, Why do you say that? Because... You know, this is part of what concerns me about Tully is imbalance. There, there absolutely is a rational reason that the government would create the Board of Photographic Examiners, and that is that the government employees, particularly elected officials, have an interest in helping the established people in the marketplace who are powerful people in society and can help them. So excluding some people from the marketplace is entirely rational for government actors, we just said it's unconstitutional to do that. So, you know, isn't that seems to me to have been the heart of fruits of their own labor throughout its time since the provision was framed, is that, that that's what it's intended to do. I, uh, I would agree with you, and, but I would say in, um, in two of those cases, in State versus Balance and in Bazell, the court said what you, what, we, what you, the government, are trying to regulate here 
there's no need for you to regulate it. Bazell is an interesting case because it has to do with the ability to where you place gas stations. And the court makes this big distinction and says, well, it's not a dance hall. You know, it's not, um, I don't know what other term they use for it, it's not a gambling parlor. Those are the sort of things that we, we, we regulate, but we're certainly not going to regulate uh, a, a gas station. Well, now, environmental laws, things like that, things like there are regulations. But, in the, but implicit in those cases, which are different than Tully, and I'm not arguing, I don't think this court needs to um, get rid of Tully. I think Tully can exist, and Tully existing being a valid cause of action under the Fruits of the Labor Clause, it's built into the decision in Tully is this argument, like, like I said, of causation. And this gets to one of the factual issues that, that, uh, <coughs> that this uh, court has asked about. Um, what's been alleged here is that uh, Sergeant Mole heard that this guy was going to smoke a marijuana cigarette. And, we, and he brought about a great resolution. What happens if that marijuana cigarette had been laced with fentanyl? What happened if he permitted him to smoke it and he, put it, he was in handcuffs and put him back in the car? He put this man's life at risk. This goes to the, this goes to the reality that as opposing counsel can point to the unfairness of it and the egregiousness of it and the unhappiness of it, it doesn't create... Those are policy decisions that are based on... Um, after-the-fact determinations of getting a very good result. What's your response to the curious angle of that, though, which is that the individual could have smoked the marijuana cigarette while the negotiations were going on anyway, and that in having it to be postponed during the course of the negotiations, that the officer was actually acting within the realm of the policy in uh, having delayed what otherwise could have been inevitably done sooner anyway? I think the, uh, I think, again, we, it, there's a determination of hindsight that's being included, and there's a determination of uh, assuming that, that it was necessarily going to work this way. Again, if there was a policy that said, you have to go fulfill the, the surrender agreement, then I think this case falls within the ambit of Tully. That's the fundamental difference. Is there, had Mr. Mole, had Sergeant Mole said, um, I'm sorry, I can't let you do it. I don't know what's in that thing. I apologize. There would not have been an internal affairs investigation. There would not have been a basis for one. Had Sergeant Mole said, you know, uh, the chief downtown, she's not going to let me let you smoke marijuana cigarette. But you said you wanted to see your son. I'll get you extra time with your son. Um, so, he, so question, what was the conduct unbecoming? What, was it unbecoming to make the agreement? Or was it simply unbecoming to honor the agreement? I would say, keeping in mind that I didn't draft the complaint, and um, but I, I think the... I think the implication from the way it is drafted and from outside knowledge, it was the honoring of the agreement. It was the permission to smoke marijuana while in custody. And this case um, is a powerful case for plaintiffs because it, and the plaintiff's bar because the changing perceptions of marijuana consumption 
in this country. And the reality is that he had some substance that we don't know what it was. It turned out to have been marijuana and everything was fine, but we don't necessarily know that that is what it was. And that is what the issue is. Um, you know, well, let, let, me, uh, let me give you a sort of a ver another version of the hypothetical I posed to the um, plaintiff's counsel. Suppose it had been heroin. Would you say that, that Sergeant Molay agreeing to allow the subject to uh, use the heroin upon surrender, in that situation, would you say that the agreement would be uh, unbecoming? I, I, unbecoming? I, I, Yes, I would agree. I think that's just a, a more egregious and a less uh, persuasive set of facts for the appellant had it been. Uh, so, so it's okay, it's not conduct unbecoming to agree to allow the subject to smoke marijuana, but it would be conduct unbecoming to agree to allow the, the, the subject to use heroin. Well, I'm, I'm answering on behalf of opposing counsel. Uh, I, I, I would say that, it, that it's conduct unbecoming. It, it's within the chief of police's discretion to make both conduct unbecoming. Uh, the, the fact is, is that these are persuasive facts because many people would consider the marijuana not unbecoming, but the heroin unbecoming. And that goes to a key point that I'll get to later, but the equal protection argument um, fails, uh, Toomer versus Garrett is not readily applicable to uh, the facts here. Toomer versus Garrett had to do with the alleged release in retaliation of a person of a very, uh, of a personal file, personnel file with embarrassing information, information that was alleged to be fabricated. And it was done, like I said, in retaliation. It doesn't sound in employment law the way this does. I, I know that you, you're moving on to, sorry, you're moving on to equal protection, but I, I do have one more question about the Tully claim, and I'm, I'm really struggling to understand your argument about causation, and, it, it, and, and in particular, you seem to be suggesting that um, the policy would have to be very narrow and specific to this circumstance um, to give rise to a claim. But my, my question is, reading the policy that was in effect at the time, 4030, in effect at the time, um, where, where it clearly says the saving of human life um, is the primary goal in dealing with the hostage or barricaded suspect situations. All demands are negotiable except for the following situations. Then three situations are laid out which don't apply here. How would an officer be on notice or have any um, knowledge that uh, taking action which his training tells him to do, that is action to, to, to um, prohibit the individual from uh, uh, you know, taking an altering substance while he's barricaded because that could um, change his behavior. Taking action that he's trained to do, how would he be on notice that that would then subject him to termination? Uh, I, I would disagree, Your Honor, and say that, that um, his training required him to permit the suspect to smoke the marijuana cigarette. Um, again, had and we're dealing with the actual policies here, not what not the policies that are being prescribed, not the policies being advocated in the uh, amicus briefs. 
and the and if the policy here had been you have to comply with the agreement, then I would agree that we would fall within the ambit of Tully, uh, at least for that purpose. And I, so I would say, um, because this worked out, because this w w was a successful resolution, there's an inclination to say, well, we want to come in and we want to tell the chief of police what is or is not a, a conduct unbecoming, what is or is not a reason for termination. Um, and this goes into the, the, the policy concerns that arise from constitutionalizing these sorts of internal decisions. And this is a different issue than um, the, the uh, fruits of labor clause, the equal protection arguments. These are fundamentally different, but I think there's some interesting discussion uh, policy-wise for fruits of their labor that comes out in equal protection, particularly the uh, United States Supreme Court's decision in Oleg, I'm sorry, not Noliak, in, uh, Inquest, which talks about how we're not going to have class of one equal protection claims. We're certainly not going to have class of one equal protection claims when it comes to internal governmental employment decisions. And this court is obviously not bound by that decision, but I would say that there is some powerful evidence and some explanation um, as to why that is good policy and why it applies here. Uh, Supreme Court noted... Before you go there, well, you can't have a class of one uh, due process claim, though, procedural due process claim, right? Uh, I think you can have... A we see those all the time. Right. I, I'm, so what, you're, you're right. I, I'm one thing I can't understand is why we don't have a, our version of a procedural due process claim, a law of the land clause claim in this case. What's, is it because Tully precluded those for some reason? Uh, well, so Tully found, uh, as part of the decision, that um, concepts of, and I'm going to quote the correct language, uh, disparate treatment or other, uh, you know, uh, does not Tully does not incorporate theories of disparate treatment or other elements of federal employment discrimination law. Um, so I would say Tully talks about it in that context. I think there is no procedural due process <laughs> claim for multiple reasons, one of which is the, the, it, there's no property interest as demonstrated in Presnell v. Pell. Presnell v. Pell talks in the employment context of a liberty interest, but that claim also involves stigma. There's no allegation of stigma here, but, the court, but in Presnell v. Pell, the court talks about how if there's an opportunity to be, to be heard and an opportunity to grieve the precision, then that liberty interest is satisfied. And I think um, that... So why not apply that logic, <clears throat> the Presnell logic, to the Tully facts and say you created this process and then you didn't follow it arbitrarily? And that's a violation of the law of the land clause. That, that, I guess that's the core of what I'm struggling with in this case. It seems so, such a clean way to resolve it so we don't have to keep trying to understand where the line is in Tully. And then we could just apply that principle to the facts in this case and say, was there a clear policy that was violated? And, you know, go from there. Uh, we, Your Honor, I would say for, um, for Tully, let's, uh, going through that process, it results in there not being a violation of the law of the land clause. And then this gets back to the causation argument I was making, which is there was an opportunity for 
this matter to be investigated. It was investigated not by the people who made the decision as to what punishment should happen. There was a file created. It was investigated. It went through all the way up the chain of command, and decisions got made. After the decision was made that uh, Sergeant Mole was unhappy with, that the chief of police chose to terminate him, he was then permitted to grieve the process. So I would say we can frame it that way, and I... Uh, um, um, so, I so you've made a statement in there that it was investigated, and yet the allegation in the complaint is that the investigation was never completed. Why are we, one, required to take the allegations of the complaint as true, and if, two, if the investigation was never completed, uh, why does that not support the claim? Uh, Your Honor, I would say that uh, 12B6 under North Carolina law is um, the standard is not as tough as it is in federal court regarding uh, plausibility and the requirement, but there's, still a, but there's still no obligation by this court to accept legal conclusions. And I think there's still a requirement for specific factual allegations. And there's places where the complaint is very detailed, and there's places where it is very broad and vague. And I think had this court been presided, provided with some specific factual allegations as to how and why it is insufficient, that would itself that itself could lead to the claim. I think um, opposing counsel has argued elsewhere that Sergeant Mole was uh, terminated for telling the truth. Uh, that's a somewhat misleading statement. Uh, Sergeant Mole uh, was terminated for telling the truth uh, about what he did, and there's no dispute as to what those actions were. Now, had um, so in that context, I think that there, there, is, there is a broad uh, allegation about how the process wasn't completed. There's no specific allegations as to how and why it was not. This gets to the underlying issue, and this gets to maybe why um, I should better explicate the causation argument, but because, again, it's not... Uh, Rule 56, I'm not permitted to provide you all a full explanation of everything that happened, and, but just based upon what's in there, the, predeterminate, uh, the predisciplinary conference is with his supervisor. Several ranks above his supervisor is the person who makes the decision. So one day on undisputed facts, three days on undisputed facts. Uh, again, the Court of Appeals said, well, he could have had additional time to prepare, but I would say prepare for what? If there's no dispute about what occurred, the only question is, what does the chief of police consider this? Then that is an important, uh, that's an important distinction. I think I uh, heard you state, and you can tell me if I was wrong, that if it were not investigated, if the incident were not investigated, that that could lead to a claim. What kind of claim would that have been? Uh, well, if it was not investigated, um, then it potentially could, not under these facts, but if we had, um, if Mr. Mole had a property interest in his employment, he had signed a written agreement that he would only be terminated for certain reasons at certain times, and then the city did not comply with that process and terminated him without complying with that process, and he had a property interest, then I think that would give rise to a claim. Um, 
I think for purposes of procedural due process and the cases that have discussed it, I don't think they explicitly require train or, or they don't require investigation. But if there was a poli- if there was a property interest and there was a policy that required investigation and that was not complied with, that would have created a claim. But that's not the situation we find ourselves in here. Is there a property right in the procedure themselves? Uh, there is not a property right in the. Pre- I do not. Be- no, I do not believe there's a property right in the procedures themselves. Um, the uh, this court back in uh, Washoot versus McNeil talked about this was again a city of Durham police officer who was terminated for supporting his wife's uh, his wife's um, actions to speak on her behalf in the department. And procedural due process claims were alleged there, and those were dismissed. And I think that that's still good law and applies. Um, so I, I know I keep coming back to this, but so uh, even if there's not a property interest, your position also is there's no liberty interest. And if, the go- if there's clear policies in place, and you as a government employee rely on those policies, arguably save someone's life, and then get fired for that, there's no liberty interest in saying the government arbitrarily and irrationally refused to follow those policies, assuming that is what happened in a case like this. And therefore, and I lost my job because of that, and I can pursue a law of the land clause claim for the violation of that liberty interest. Do you, do you disagree with that? Um, I, I, I do think there could be a liberty interest claim for an officer in situations su- such as this. I think Pressnell opens that up. Um, and I, I think that that exists under North Carolina law, and it could arise. Um, I think that liberty interest claim, though, is satisfied if there are procedures in place. And th- those procedures occurred, and those procedures happened at going through the process. Um, the, uh, and so... Um, i to think of the best way to... Um, address it. Um, uh, to go in briefly back to equal protection, um, appellants t- talk to you, talk to you all about discrimination, and said so that Mr. Mole was discriminated against, and that's discrimination in the broad sense, not in the narrow constitutional suspect class sense. But that is exactly what the Supreme Court dealt with in Inquest where it talked about how um, supervisors making individualized decisions and discrimination and discriminating between situations is itself subjective and individualized and that's how that process is supposed to work. Uh, One thing that we've not covered, uh, I've not covered, is the ability of police department supervisors to make decisions about who to hire and who to fire. Now, it's outside the scope of the um, complaint, but the reality is the egregious actions by police officers that didn't result in terminations happened under the previous chiefs of police. The chief of police comes in. Is she not in a position to make a decision, I'm not going to allow this sort of thing anymore? Are we bound by the uh, determinations that since these previous matters weren't treated as severely, that I can't get more severe, not only with those matters, but lesser matters. And that is an important part of being able to do the job and make the necessary decisions. Council, I hate to throw you off stride, but 
Would you concede that in entering the agreement with the subject that Sergeant Molay did not violate General Order 4030 uh, R3 on its face? Absolutely. So it seems to me what you're saying is that the agreement was okay, but honoring the agreement was a violation. Uh, that is correct. So do you see a problem with putting a negotiator in that position? Uh, Your Honor, I, I would say that well, they are, had Sergeant Molay not complied with the agreement, it might have led to policy issues down the road, but it certainly wouldn't have led, maybe, but it certainly wouldn't have led to um, a potential issue uh, if for, Mr. for Sergeant Molay here. I think, again, we, we run the risk of making a decision based upon how this particular situation played out. Uh, what happens, again, uh, you, put the guy, you put the suspect in cuffs, and he takes heroin. There's angel dust or there's something, um, you know, horrible in the marijuana. And you've now, you know, put him in a serious medical situation by facilitating something. Here, th this worked out. But the policy doesn't say you have to comply. You, have, you must follow through in it. Could, could it create, could it undermine future um, hostage negotiations if um, the, the view becomes fixed in the public mind that uh, negotiators won't live up to their agreements? Well, that gets into the arguments from the amicus briefs, and that's a key point because those are policy arguments. And it's a 12B6 um, motion and insufficient to state a claim. And we all run a risk whenever we not supervisors in a department having no law enforcement experience decide how we want to do it. That may be the better policy. That may be the better way to do it. But the chief of police who has been hired for that position and is administrating her office needs to make the decisions that she uh, deems are best for, the, for her and for the department. And as long as no constitutional violations occur, then I think that that's entirely appropriate. And what has been presented to you here is close to Tully, but it is not Tully for the reasons I've outlined. And if there are no further questions, I'll conclude my argument. Thank you, counsel. Rebuttal. First of all, on the issue of causation, we clearly pled that Sergeant Mole fully complied with General Order 4030 R3. Um, and that he was fired for complying with it. In fact, the second paragraph of the statement of facts from uh, the city states that Sergeant Molay was fired for his actions and decisions on June 28, uh, 2016. Um, uh, Justice Allen, in terms of uh, your question sort of about conduct unbecoming and so on, the city's representations regarding conduct unbecoming is a moving target. At the Court of Appeals, they allege that Sergeant Molay participated in the commission of a crime. Judge Carpenter, who had a law enforcement background, I believe, before he went to law school, immediately said, what was the crime? 
There is no crime for smoking marijuana. There is no statute prohibiting that. In this brief before this court, they have now said in footnote 3 at page 37 of the brief that the conduct unbecoming was destruction of evidence. Presumably, half of the blunt got smoked was the destruction of evidence. In fact, Your Honor, we did plead what you just asked. That is that if he had not complied, if Sergeant Molle had not complied with the surrender agreement, that would have substantial impacts on being able to successfully negotiate similar situations either with this suspect or with other suspects. It's going to get out on the street. So he was, it was appropriate and necessary, and we have pled that for him to comply. Final point, there are these issues involving Inquist, uh, the Oregon, that uh, Mr. Sappenfield has tried to use to minimize the impact of cases like State v. Balance and King v. Town of Chapel Hill. That Inquist argument was the basis for the dissent at the Court of Appeals in Tully. It was strongly ordered by, uh, argued by the city of Wilmington before this court in Tully. And this Thank you. court Thank in you, Tully no, I believe your time's expired. rejected that unanimously. Thank you. Mr. Clark.